to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. So um, this is the first podcast since the election, and a lot of things have happened since the last time we were together. One is that Joe Biden is the president-elect of the United States. Yes, we have defeated Donald Trump despite the machinations by the Trump folks, despite the lunacy that is happening as I speak right now, Joe Biden will be sworn in as the next president of the United States, January 20th at noon. However, there's a lot happening. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And it's hard to believe that we are where we are with this. But this episode, I have Stuart Stevens, one of my Lincoln Project brethren. He's also a veteran of five presidential campaigns, as well as countless other Republican campaigns. He is an ad maker extraordinaire. And he wrote a really, really powerful book called It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. And I have to say, when I read the book over the summer, it was really impactful and influenced me in a way that was um, really profound because it it forced me to have to reevaluate some of my my role in the the mess that the Republican Party is and whether I was just naive about what was happening and some of the uglier elements and the underbelly of what was going on in the party. It forced me to have to really examine all of that. And it was a struggle. Uh, would I stay in the party? What would I do? And if you follow me and if you watch Lincoln Project TV, our show, The Breakdown, you will know that the day after the election, I made an announcement that I was walking away after 27 years with the Republican Party. I was walking away because I could no longer tolerate, put up with, excuse any of it anything that was going on. Not saying I was excusing it before. I was holding on to be a part of the rebuilding of the party. You know, once Trumpism was repudiated, the party's burned to the ground and we start over. And I wanted to be a part of that with the same people. Once I saw that at that point, it was about 70 million people. It's more than that now as votes continue to be counted two weeks later. But once I saw that over 70 million people voted for another four years of the sociopath that Donald Trump is, I said, I'm done. It tells me that we have a much, much bigger societal problem here than just arguing over policy. It's way bigger than that. And when Donald Trump came out on election night and made those insane proclamations from the White House, about voter fraud and the election is rigged and Republicans didn't immediately say, stop it. It told me everything I needed to know. Not as if we didn't really know this already. And it was the, it was the nightmare scenario that I feared that if the election was close, that Donald Trump would do this. He telegraphed it, right? It's really not a shock that he chose to do this. He told us he was going to dispute the election. He told us in 2016, that he wouldn't accept the results if he lost. (laughs) He won and he still bitched and whined and complained about the election. Remember the whole, there was voter fraud. He set up that commission and it was disbanded within a year because they couldn't find any voter fraud and it was a sham. 
we're right back to that. But now it really matters because he actually did lose. It actually wasn't that close. Electorally, 306 to 232, that's what he won. Same exact electoral vote count as 2016. That's what Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton with. And they said it was a landslide victory. He has a mandate. The people have spoken. Hillary Clinton lost by 77,000 votes in the pop in, in three states. That was the difference. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. 77 combined. 77,000 votes. Donald Trump is losing Michigan as we speak by 148,000 votes just in Michigan. He's losing by 82,000 votes right now in Pennsylvania. He beat Hillary Clinton by 44,000 votes in 2016. He is winning. Joe Biden is winning Wisconsin by 22,000 votes, about the same for Donald Trump in 2016. But Trump is now demanding recounts. He wants a recount in Georgia. Joe Biden is up by 14, 13, 14,000 votes. Screaming about what's happening in Arizona. Lawsuits being filed left and right everywhere, creating all of this chaos. And guess how many victories they've had in court? They are one for 26. They have no proof. They're out here sowing the, the, the seeds of distrust of our electoral system, which is against democracy. It is the most anti-American thing that we have seen yet because it goes to the heart of our system, the heart of our democracy. Even in his defeat, Donald Trump is still a freaking existential threat because according to a new poll by Mammoth this week, 70% of Republicans believe that Joe Biden won the election because of election fraud. This is insane. And untrue. Why is Donald Trump's legal team one for 26 in court thus far? Because they have no evidence. This is all farcical, conspiracy theorist, not conspiracy theory nonsense. You know, you can say whatever you want in the public square, but it's a whole different ballgame when you get into court. So we're witnessing something that is so incredibly damaging that it's 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 infuriating. You want to pull your hair out because as average citizens, there's not much really we can do at this point, right? We went and we voted these crazy bastards out. Well, some of them. But we still have a transition period here. And this was what I feared. What would happen during the transition period? It's um we're living it out right now. It is absolute chaos. But thank God. Our judiciary system, our judiciary branch has held intact and has um, pushed back on this lunacy. But it is, it's exhausting. You know, it, it is the campaign that won't end. It's the campaign from hell that won't end. But I give credit to Joe Biden. I'm glad that Joe Biden won. Um, that is, I'm thrilled. It's bittersweet because, like I said, we still have a whole problem with these crazies on the other side. Um, that's, you know, we'll have that conversation of how we deal with that moving forward. But for right now, Joe, Joe Biden has the most votes ever. He's approaching 80 million popular votes. Unfortunately, Donald Trump has the second most votes cast ever 
73 million. But that's not really close. So, but yet here we are. And in my conversation coming up with Stu Stevens, uh, we talk a little bit about the the uh, perpetuation, the eco chamber of these, the the of these um, propaganda machines. You know, the right wing media and how the the all of this misinformation is just pushed out and pushed out. I mean, it is an alternate universe on Fox and these other stations. It really, really is. It's lunacy. I just, there's no other word for it, but it's dangerous lunacy. You know, if you want to be a lunatic in your own house, that's fine. But these are not victimless crimes here. They're not. And I fear what sowing this level of discord does for the future of our democracy. It's um, oh, frustrating. Like we want to celebrate. Ding dong, the witch is dead, right? Trump has been defeated, but we still have a lot of work to do. We really do. I want to bring in, speaking of work to do because of this ongoing battle happening in Michigan, I want to bring in, um, before I bring in Stu Stevens, Jeff Timmer. He is a former uh, party chairman in the state of Michigan. Um, He was party chair, I believe, from 2005 to 2009. Um, But he's another Lincoln Project advisor. And he knows some of the people that are involved in the canvassing controversies in in Michigan. And, um, you know, I just think it's important for you to hear from someone who's familiar with what's going on, talking about what he's witnessing and his thoughts on what's happening. So I want to bring in Jeff Timmer. I really thought it was important that I bring on someone who has direct knowledge of what the hell's happening in Michigan since Detroit and the state of Michigan have been at the center of some of this Trump legal lunacy concerning the ballots and the election. And Jeff Timmer is with me. He was director of the GOP of Michigan back in the earlier 2000s and knows some of the players involved and is very familiar with the voting systems and the uh, canvassing boards and things. Things happening there in Michigan. And he's also a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project. So Jeff, welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. What the hell is happening in your home state? That's the big question, isn't it? What's happening is the Republicans in the legislature uh, have been saying all the right things about respecting the vote, respecting the popular vote and Joe Biden's apparent win uh, of a margin of greater than 150,000. Yet all the forces that are involved in making that happen seem to be lining up to deny them the opportunity to have a popular vote winner certified in Michigan. <laughs> are they going to be able to pull this sense? off? No, no. <laughs> well, yeah, what, what, what's, what looks like it may happen is a repeat of what happened earlier this week in Wayne County. The Wayne County where Detroit is, the canvassing board there, the two Republicans deadlocked on the original vote and didn't certify the election, they later recanted and, and certified. And, and there's every prospect that the same thing may happen with the, the state board, which is made up of two Republicans and two Democrats. And if that were to happen uh, and there was no certification in time, the legislature could take over and certify a Trump slate of electors claiming irregularities, claiming problems with voting mechanisms, claiming any number of things. 
So for people who are watching this, right, the casual American citizen watching all of this chaos happening, um, is it what happens if that happens? I mean, we've heard now in in news reports that we have Michigan elected officials, Republicans being summoned to the White House for a meeting with Trump. He already called one of the uh, election canvassers on that board in in Detroit in Wayne County. Um, uh, one of these guys, I mean, the two the, the two Republicans, I have to say, that were involved in the Wayne County issue are batshit crazy. And one of them is a flat out racist, that Hartman. Um, but they ultimately turned around and agreed to certify. And then allegedly now they've written affidavits claiming that they were bullied into it and that they want to rescind it. That's not possible, right? right? That's not possible. (laughs) It's not possible. And and what's what's kind of ironic about that is they're trying to change their vote after their election day uh, as they claim that there were irregularities in votes being counted after election day. And so they're trying to do exactly uh, what they're claiming happened in Detroit, and that was um, changing the the vote after the fact. But that did not happen, right? The, the, no, can you can you explain the irregularities that they're pointing to for people who aren't familiar, obviously, with what happens in in Detroit or in Michigan um, when they say that there are some disparities between the numbers of votes and and the, 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 the books? And can you just explain a little bit about what exactly is happening there? Sure. I mean, there's it's, it's, what's happening is, is some basic clerical human error that seems to happen in every election. And it's not just confined to places like Detroit. That's where these people are focusing uh, their uh, public relations efforts to try to discredit the vote in Detroit. But what happens is, say, say, 100 people show up to vote and their names are written in the poll books. But when they count the votes at the end of the day, there's 99 votes accounted for. Uh, and so they're claiming that or, or 101 votes accounted for, for instance, the, the number of votes doesn't balance with the number of people. And there's any number of reasons why that could happen. Somebody checks in, is waiting in line, decides they need to leave for whatever reason, and they walk out after having received their ballot, but they don't cast their ballot. There's any number of reasonable explanations. There's just human error that could take place. Uh, but we're talking about a small number, dozens, hundreds of votes spread across the city, not thousands, certainly not tens of thousands, and certainly not more than 150,000. Right. <laughs> Which is the vote margin right now of victory for Joe Biden, right? right? It's about 150,000, right. 148. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's actually gone up like 155,000. Oh, even even better. So, They're still yeah. counting as yeah. we as <laughs> as, uh, right. as Rick Wilson was saying earlier on. Fuck you, keep <laughs> counting. Well, they are still counting, <laughs> right. and it's and it's helping Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah, and, and so the, the the games that are being played are are nothing more than that. But what they can do is throw things into some kind of stalemate where the boards that are responsible for what is just an administerial position of certifying these the the, the counts they receive from these local election clerks. Uh, they, they have a duty to do that. If they ignore that duty, they could be held in, in contempt of court. Um, but uh, then what would happen is the canvassers would probably resign to avoid contempt of court, but that their resignations and vacancies would have the same effect of, of um, stonewalling, of, of deadlocking the boards, because then no certification could happen. And then we get into the somebody has to make uh, make a decision before the Electoral College is to meet on December 14th. Has anything like this ever happened? And, that, and that's where the legislature comes in. Right. No, nothing like this has ever happened before. <laughs> oh, my God. 
you know, I, I, I keep joking about how this is the campaign from hell that won't end. And, you know, this is the nightmare scenario that a lot of us feared. And this is playing out almost word for word what that Atlantic story that came out over the summer that horrified everyone about the Trump folks trying to do exactly what they're doing influencing yep. if they yeah, lose I, trying to influence electors and legislatures and suing and creating all this chaos and here we freaking are yeah i talked to the author for that atlantic story i'm quoted in there about this it's not like i was nostradamus right but you could see whatever it's it's whatever whatever the bad worst decision is whatever causes the most harm the most chaos you can assume that's the decision that trump will will, will make and that's how this is going to play out and that's exactly what's happening so you mentioned to me um, off air that you uh, served with one of these folks that uh, is involved in this. Can you explain your familiarity with some of these personalities? Yeah, this board of state canvassers, which is the state board that certifies the election. I sat on that for three years. And one of the current members uh, has been on the board since 2008. I served with him. I've known him for 30 years. Uh, he uh, is a good longtime Republican, a former state senator, uh, is a great guy, um, and is also become very Trumpy. Uh, his wife is one of the complainants in uh, one of the lawsuits out of Detroit. Uh, his very, you know, conflicted interests in this, and you know, I think having known him for as long as I have, that ultimately. He will do the right thing. I have, I have hope that he will, um, but uh, I'm concerned. He's not one of the people flying to Washington, is he? No, he's not. Uh, 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 not yet, at least. <laughs> well, he might get a phone call. Um, we know that uh, that Hartman on the Wayne County canvassing board got a phone call from Trump. Um, you know, I that's the you know the, the same thing is happening in Georgia, where this pressure, political pressure, is being put on these Republican officials who are trying to do the right thing and put their country over party loyalty here and and, and doing the right thing. Um, but it's uh, it, it's difficult to know which way people are going to go. I mean, they're getting death threats. Their families are being threatened. This is happening in Arizona as well with the Secretary of State there. Um, it's happened in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, it's happening with Dr. Fauci, for God's sakes. Um, and now, uh, you know, in Michigan, we know what happened with the governor there and the threats against her life. Um, do you know if if similar pressure is being put on these folks in the on the canvassing boards in Michigan? I think the same. I, I think a lot of the pressure, the same pressures that we're seeing are, are being applied to those folks uh, from the from the right and the left, uh, from the from the sane people and the crazies. And I think you know that we have to be very alarmed about what we're seeing right now. It all it all still seems kind of hyperbolic to think that there could be a coup uh, related to the American election. But if there is, it's going to be too late by the time people take it seriously. And so that's why they need to start signing shining a lot of sunlight on this right now. I think the, the more people speak up, the more we talk about this like we're doing right now, the more that uh, the news focuses on this, the more op-eds there are about this, the more calls there are to these legislators in, in Michigan and other states, the less likely this is to happen. Well, you know, that's good to know, because I think a lot of people wonder, what can I do? What can be done at this point? You know, you feel a little bit helpless as as you watch this process going on, especially if you don't live in that state. You're like, well, what the hell can I do? But what's important is to continue to pay attention. And uh, for people and any of my listeners who live in Michigan, um, you make sure you get on the phone and you call your, your state and local officials and make sure that they do the right thing, because... 
<laughs> this is unprecedented, as you mentioned. It is a direct assault on our democracy. And it really, it, it cannot stand. This just really cannot stand. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, there's almost really no words to describe the level of, of lunacy that's happening. I mean, uh, did you see the, the, the press conference today with, uh, Giuliani and, and the the crack team of legal advisors. <laughs> I mean, it's. I've seen the I've seen some of the clips in the aftermath, and it's 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 as crazy. You can't even script that kind of thing on on uh, you know in a farce if you were trying to create a movie about this or an SNL skit. It's crazier than real life. It's true, and um, you know it's a whole different ball game. As I've mentioned before, once you step in, step into the courtroom, because you can say all that crazy nonsense outside, but you're under oath. People have law licenses on the line. You cannot make those kinds of accusations without evidence in a court of law. A judge won't have it. And a lot of what they have filed so far, even in Michigan, has been thrown out because it's been hearsay. And as one judge said, hearsay within hearsay and uh, not, and legally dubious. So we can only hope that the court system continues to hold and, um, you know, is the firewall here to stop and thwart these efforts. But what, what the PR campaign and the attitudes that are being um, manipulated here against our democracy and against a legitimate election. That's a longer term problem and, and one that I don't think we're going to fix right away. But, um, in closing, is there one la anything else you want my listeners to know about what's happening specifically in Michigan or so they can sleep well at night at least? <laughs> or what to look for or no, important I dates? I don't think that, I don't think they should sleep well. I think this meeting at the White House is, is, is very worrisome. Uh, the, the, the pressure that's going to be brought to bear on the legislative leaders is enormous. And I, worry that they're not going to be able to withstand uh, uh, buckling to it. That is not what I wanted to hear, t Jeff. <laughs> no, I mean, that's honest. You're being honest. And um, that that's why a lot of us have what I always say is agita, my Italian and me. Um, it, it's disturbing. And we need to pay attention and call out, call it out. What's the date of certification in Michigan? The well, it, the board of state canvassers is meeting this Monday. They're not required to certify until December thirteenth. Uh, hopefully, it will happen before then, and hopefully, we'll know what direction this is going to go on Monday. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned and um, make sure that folks follow Jeff on uh, Twitter. It's uh, at Jeff Timmer. Is that your Twitter? That is. Yes. Um, so and if you want to get a uh, firsthand account of what's happening in Michigan with someone who knows what he's talking about and does not mince words, which is why I like Jeff Timmer. Jeff, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Oh, good God. You know, it, it's like you want to cling on and hope that people are going to do the right thing. But you heard it even from Jeff. He's not. He's not resting well at night because he's concerned that these people will cave. Uh, listen, I have to admit that that is consistent with what I've heard from sources that I have of people who are well connected in Trump world telling me they warned me about this, actually, a couple days after the election, when Trump was, you know, beginning to ramp up this nonsense one of my very close friends who is very well connected to Trump world. He's not in Trump world, but he's got a lot of friends who are and colleagues. And he told me this is what they were going to do. They were going to sue and create legal chaos. And that pressure was going to be brought down on some of these Republican officials. And 
he actually told, called and told me that a friend of his in Georgia was very concerned. He's an appointee of the governor in Georgia, Republican operative, and he's very concerned about the type of pressure that was coming down on them from the White House, from the campaign, from others, right? We heard about Lindsey Graham and and him meddling in in what's going on in Georgia, trying to get convinced and pressure the, the Georgia Secretary of State, who's a Republican, to try to throw out legal votes. And then Lindsey Graham trying to say, oh, it's not what I was doing. Oh, shut up, Lindsey. He's the worst. Oh, God, I can't believe he won again. <laughs> I wanted him to lose so badly. But this is what my friend told me would happen. He said that these people were getting death threats, their families were being threatened, and he wasn't sure that they would hold the line. Well, that's exactly what we're witnessing happening, right? And it's not just Georgia. It's Michigan. You heard Jeff Timmer, Arizona, other places. Um, this is this is so unacceptable. And I mentioned the the crazy Giuliani um, press conference that happened <laughs> uh, while this this uh, podcast was being recorded. And it was really something that was straight out of the tinfoil hat. The moon landing was faked. There's aliens in a bunker in New Mexico type of batshit crazy. Donald Trump has lost the, the campaign and, and uh, you know, Trump, they've, they've lost all the major reputable law firms who were representing them. Shortly after the election, you had some big ones, heavyweights, right? Jones Day and, and, and uh, Powell Tate. These are well-known, reputable law firms that took up the initial legal cases here, protesting some irregularities, right? Well, Lincoln Project was like, yeah, we need to reveal who these people are and um, let folks know that they are taking on cases that are disrupting our democracy, now, I didn't fully agree in full disclosure with like going after specific lawyers, but I did think that we had every right to point out who these law firms were, who their clients are and what they're doing. Well, guess what? Within a week, almost all of those law firms, any any lawyer worth their salt said, yeah, not so much. They withdrew. As the cases became more and more farcical and more and more legally dubious, you don't have any reputable lawyers anymore. So you're stuck with Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, Joe Genova, and Victoria Townsing, who are a husband and wife team that uh, were very involved with Giuliani and Russian oligarchs and Parnas and Fruman and that whole unsavory um, crap with that. So yeah. They're completely discredited people. Jen Ellis is, I don't think she's ever set foot in a courtroom. She's an idiot. And um, K-File over at CNN, um, you know the guy who runs K-File, Andrew Krasinski? He was an intern with me, um, not with me, but for me, under me, in in the, my old congressional office when I worked for Dana Rohrabacher. He was one of our interns for a semester. <laughs> So I'm very proud of him and uh, see how far he's come and also say a prayer for his his uh, baby girl. His infant daughter has um, has cancer and he's going through a lot with his family and she's going through chemo. So say a little prayer for Andrew Kaczynski and his precious baby. That's an aside. Anyway, he uncovered uh, that Jen Ellis, Jenna Ellis, 
said that Donald Trump was a moron. He was, he was an idiot. The horrible things he said about women, he's not a real Christian. And oh yeah, back in 2016, before Trump became president, another one has completely sold her soul for, you know, for money or fame or for being able to run around on Fox News and make an ass of herself. Yeah, this is the, she actually said during this press conference that it was an elite strike force of of lawyers. <laughs> elite strike force? No, it's more like Keystone Cops here. They're third rate legal losers, all of them. Rudy Giuliani stepped foot in a federal courtroom this week for the first time since 1992 and made a complete jackass of himself. Not as if he hasn't been doing that consistently for the last few years, but now it's in a court of law and it matters. This is not him just making an ass of himself on Fox News. He didn't know legal terms. He was confused. He couldn't remember the name of the lawyer his on, on the other side. He didn't know what the word opacity meant. The judge had to explain it to him. It means you can't see, you know, like something's opaque. Horrible. Embarrassing. And then it was released, it was uh, uh, reported that he wa- he was seeking $20,000 a day to represent the campaign in court. <laughs> Get the hell out of here. $20,000 a day. His legal services aren't worth $20,000 a decade. You got to be kidding me. But this is what we're dealing with. These are the people leading the fight. And some of the things that they brought up during that batshit crazy press conference about Dominion voting services and Venezuela and Hugo Chavez and George Soros. I mean, it was like an Alex Jones episode. Lunacy. All of that has been fact-checked and debunked, like thoroughly fact-checked and debunked. This idea about Dominion voting, uh, you know, the machines and the software that they were, that they're sent off seas. Oh, I mean, offshore and they're, you know, connected to Venezuela and things are changed that listen, the AP, if you want a a good fact checking place to go, AP does excellent fact checking. They have a whole thing about this. None of that's true. Dominion is not a Canadian company. They have no relationship to Venezuela. Um, this, this Smartmatic company that they are claiming, Dominion and Smartmatic are not the same. They don't have the same ownership. As a matter of fact, they're competitors. They both did have ownership of another company called Sequoia at one point um, back in 2005, but then it was sold and the other one bought it. So they were never together. It was completely separated. Smartmatic uh, um, did some work in Venezuela back in like 2000 something, nowhere, you know, not recently but they have no ties directly. I mean, this is all conspiracy theory gibberish. And you realize they're making all of these loony ac- accusations not in a court of law. They are trying to pull the wool over people's eyes and confuse them. So the day that we hear them say all this shit in court, that opens them up for discovery. They have to present evidence in court. That's not going to happen. It's never happening because they don't have it. As a matter of fact, there's actual recordings of the court proceedings. There's recordings of Rudy Giuliani in that Pennsylvania state, I mean, the Pennsylvania federal court where he says that this is this case is not about election fraud. He says that. Another lawyer for the Trump campaign in another state in Michigan said this is not about election fraud. They repeatedly say this while they're in court. It's recorded. You can Google it and hear it yourself. 
So the, the legal teams are saying it's not election fraud, but Trump is out here tweeting and Fox News and OANN and all these other loons are out here saying election fraud. It's going to, you know, we're going to take it over and we're, you know, we're uncovering all this evidence. It's been two weeks. Where is it? They're full of shit. And looking at all of this, Donald Trump, while all this is happening, Donald Trump still has all the powers of the presidency. And he's firing people. He's replacing them in the Pentagon, in DHS with his loyalists. Christopher Krebs, who was the head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, was created in 2018 specifically to make sure there was no foreign interference, no hacking um, into the elections, monitor what was going on. Chris Krebs has done an excellent job. And he was honest and truthful and said, look, hey, don't listen to the president. Sorry, but what he's saying is not true. And they put out an official statement saying that this was the most secure election in American history. Well, guess what happened? He got fired. Donald, Donald Trump said, get rid of him because he contradicted the nonsense. And CISA, that's the, the acronym for that agency, CISA.gov slash rumor control, they started a website to have to debunk all of the nonsense bullshit coming out of Donald Trump world. Even though Chris Krebs was fired, and you know, I say kudos to him because he went out in a blaze of glory. He went out with his honor and he stood up for the integrity of this country. So kudos to you, Chris Krebs. But that that website's still up, so you can still go see it. <laughs> I guess they haven't gotten to it yet to take it down. But it's CISA, C-I-S-A dot gov slash rumor control. You can see a lot of this stuff debunked. This is what we're dealing with. And I look at this going on and I said, you know what? I have zero regrets leaving the Republican Party. Zero at this point. It wasn't easy in that it felt like a death or a divorce. You know, 27 years is a long time. It's more than half my life. But it was it was the right thing to do. The racism, the sexism, the dishonesty, the cruelty, the corruption, the illiberal attacks on our democracy, the cozying up to dictators. You know, Ronald Reagan said that freedom is only but one generation away from extinction, that it has to be fought for. And that's exactly what we're facing right now. Just that for me, that fight is going to be outside the Republican Party. If I'm still going to fight, but not with an R next to my name. And if you haven't seen my official announcement, it's pinned on my Twitter page. It's also on my Instagram. I think um, I'm still working through how I'm going to write something, and put it down on paper. Um, I just needed time to decompress. It's been a lot. A lot is happening. <laughs> We've got the holidays coming up. And, um, you know, COVID is still raging. People are still dying. This administration is doing nothing. Trump has just completely abdicated his responsibilities wholeheartedly. Coming when it comes toward uh, to, to doing something about COVID, the good news is at least there's vaccine news that's come out recently that Pfizer and Moderna have what seem to be successful vaccines. So hopefully that will help us in a couple months, but that's not going to help us in the immediate future. And I know people have anxiety over this, but you have to be smart. You have to be smart. Wear a mask. Socially distance. If it means don't travel to see your family, don't let people in, unfortunately, that's the price we have to pay right now. But it's better than losing your life. 
it's probably a good time to bring in my sponsor before I bring in Stu Stevens, since we're talking about anxiety. As many of you know, I have a new sponsor for the podcast, and I'm very excited about them because I personally use their products. So does my husband. So does my mom. And so does my mom's dog, Samantha. Um, On Duty USA, it's a veteran-owned, veteran-farmed, and veteran-operated health and wellness company. So like I said, if you're having trouble with anxiety, even though this crazy election is technically over, but it's kind of not, we still have the holidays coming up. There's a lot going on. You know, if you have insomnia, aches and pains, On Duty's Kentucky-grown products are all you need. On Duty offers a line of premium CBD products from traditional sublingual oils, gummy bears, beeswax topicals, and more. And they've recently introduced some new products, including organic coffee and THC-free CBD drops. There's only a little bit. Some, but This is completely THC-free. So if you're like in law enforcement, like my husband, there will be no traces of it whatsoever in there. So that was a great addition to their product line. We're excited about that. But be sure to shop and save 15% on your order when you visit ondutyusa.com and sign up for their monthly subscription at checkout. You can also subscribe to the On Duty Monthly Report, where they share the latest in veteran news and offer exclusive insider discounts. As a special offer to Honestly Speaking listeners, On Duty is offering a one-time 20% off discount on your first order. Simply type Tara in the promo box. That's Tara in the promo box at ondutyusa.com for a 20% off discount. So be sure to check them out. Um, they also have some new swag that I need to take some pictures and post on, on social media. You can see it. So I'm always happy to support small businesses, especially veteran-owned small businesses. So if you know someone who's into it, could make for good Christmas gifts. So that's ondutyusa.com. All right, let's bring in my guest, Stuart Stevens, fellow Lincoln Project advisor and author of the book, It Was All a Lie. Um, It's a great conversation with Stuart. So next up, Stuart Stevens. Well, I'm really pleased in my first post-election, honestly speaking with Tara episode, to have one of my Lincoln Project brethren on with me to talk about where we are, kind of how we're feeling. There's a lot of emotions going on. Um, you know, it's it's been bittersweet that Donald Trump lost, but we still have Trumpism to deal with because 72 million people voted for this crazy bastard. And it's just, <laughs> it's been it's been an emotional couple of weeks. And um, it seems to be the campaign from hell that won't die. So who better to bring on than my good friend, Stuart Stevens, who is a veteran of five presidential campaigns and countless other Republican campaigns and, and efforts. And he is a messaging and ad genius uh cut from a different cloth than uh the Rick Wilson who's who has his own style of of ad making but Stuart is is a genius in his own right and author of a book that was life changing for me um he wrote a book called it was all a lie how the republican party became donald trump and he's here with me now Stuart I'm so happy to have you 
Oh, listen, uh, great, great to be here. Um, I, I, a longtime fan, first time caller. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. The funny thing is the first time we ever met, I think was in, um, the CNN green room back in during the 2016 campaign where, uh, you and I were on an Anderson Cooper AC 360 panel together. And I think Kelly McEnany might have been on a panel with us also back then. I can't remember if she was on that panel with us, but you and I were definitely on a panel together. And uh, I think that's where we first laid eyes on one another and determined that we were uh, on the same side here against Donald Trump and Trumpism way back in 2016. Well, you know, I I had watched you. um, I I suppose it's impolite to say, but it's true. Vivisect Kaylee McEnany on uh, CNN, (laughs) where, you know, I mean, it was just so clear she didn't believe what she was saying. Right. Um, And you just held it to account. It was was a great joy to watch. Well, thank you. Um, I took no pleasure in having to play that role over and over and over again for that um, campaign season in 2016. It was it was surreal in a lot of ways. And frankly, to have some 20 something twit that wanted to be on television more than um, anything in the world lecture me about being a Republican and a conservative was laughable. (laughs) Uh, I I really just I just couldn't take her, you know, Um, that was she was one of the few people who I never spoke one word to while we were not on set. Mm-hmm. I had zero, nothing to say to her. I despised her because she was just so contemptible. I mean, her performances and the lying and the smugness and the uh, just the her the unmitigated gall, despite her ignorance and zero experience in politics, it was just I couldn't take it, and I was just it it became almost like a almost a a, a game for me to see how much I could destroy <laughs> her <laughs> every every time we were on air. You know, I mean, it just it was just yeah, she was uh, exhausting, insufferable. But I will say. She's the perfect press secretary for this administration, um, given the Baghdad Bob level of propaganda that we hear every day. She's uh, the perfect face for it. And we won't have to put up with it for much longer. (laughs) Uh, It's, you know, I look at someone like her, uh, you know, she had every advantage in life. Mm -hmm. You know, she uh, had a chance to go to great schools. Um, I mean, she's she's one of life's lucky people. Yeah. And I think with that comes a responsibility. And it, 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 it just is so uh, immoral to be given all of that and have every opportunity and then just play this role of trying to undermine uh, democracy. It's insane. And, 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 and that's what they're doing here. I, I really, it's not a anything particularly novel or new. It just hasn't happened in America, but it happens elsewhere. They're just undermining democracy. And, and well, that's a good you know, jumping but, off point, Stuart. Yeah. You know, um, enough about that twit. I can't stand her. So <laughs> she will not get any more airtime on this podcast episode. Um, but it is a good uh, segue into where we are right now. Um, you know, the same people in America, the almost 80 million people who voted for Joe Biden, 
are counting down the days to his inauguration, right? We're 60 something days away at this point and Donald Trump and his legion of crazies are literally actively working to undermine a democratically elected president at this point. They are refusing to acknowledge the the reality of the results of these of this campaign. And we are watching something like as you just said that does not happen in America. What the hell are we watching, Stuart? You know, I wrote this book, you know, it was all a lie, finished maybe a year ago. It was a pretty bleak picture of the Republican Party. But what I realize now is I was way over optimistic. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel so naive still. I mean, had you asked me on the morning of the 3rd, uh, November, look, this race, if it goes down where it's not particularly close, do you think Republicans will acknowledge who won? And I would have said, yeah, they're going to acknowledge you won. They may not be happy about it, but of course, you know, Republican senators and congressmen are not going to try to deny who won a presidential race, which every fifth grader could say correctly. I mean, every fifth grader in Tibet can tell you who won the presidential race. (laughs) Um, But, you know, except for a few of them. it's it's unlike anything we've we've ever seen. Um, I have to admit, I um, I'm not surprised at this point that Republicans have have taken this posture. I was asked what my prediction would be. Um, who was it? Vice Vice News did a a video project where if they asked a bunch of political folks mm-hmm. what our nightmare scenarios were for the election. <laughs> And one of my nightmare scenarios that kept me up at night was the one we're living right now was that the election would be close. Donald Trump wouldn't accept it. He would tell he telegraphed what he wanted to do before. He said that it would be a rigged election. And if he lost, it was because it was fraudulent. He'd been telegraphing this for years. And and then if it were close, he would throw everything into chaos and no Republicans would stand up to him to stop it. And this is exactly what's happening. I just can't. I am beyond exasperated by the fact that not one Republican leader has had the balls to say, cut the fucking shit. Not one. Yeah, I, you know, I'll I'll never again wonder how 1938 Germany happened. Uh, um, that's an understatement. You know, it's not going to happen here. Our systems are stronger. Our courts are stronger, thank God. Um, there are people who still have a sense of civic duty. Uh, but, you know, what gets me is, you know, as conservatives, we always said the Constitution was sort of the touchstone. And this is the most fundamentally unconstitutional act here that we have this system of electing presidents. Now, you could argue we'd be better with a popular vote, which actually I've come around to arguing now, but that's not our system. But he won the Electoral College. We're not trying to say he should be president because he won the popular vote by seven million or six and a half million, but lost the Electoral College. He won both. And I mean, look, I, 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 I did Bush, worked in the Bush campaign in 2000. And say what you will about Al Gore. When the Supreme Court decision came down, the first thing that Al Gore told his press shop was, don't trust the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Because what is happening here is bigger than me. 
and he gave a very gracious uh, concession speech. And that must have ripped his heart out. I mean, to, to win the, the popular vote by half a million, to lose on a knife edge in Florida, but he did it. And in 2004, when we worked on the Bush campaign, if you remember, we couldn't declare victory until the day after because there were still Ohio. enough provisional votes in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Now, we knew that we had won because when you did the math, there wouldn't be enough provisional votes out there to change Ohio. But you, know, you didn't see President Bush rush out and he respected the process. He waited until the next day. We had that kind of weird thing at the RNC. I um, but um, he respected the process. I just, uh, you know, John McCain gave that beautiful speech in 2008 uh, when he lost, when Mitt Romney lost. Um, of course, he was concerned about the country. And so, so what is it we believe as conservatives? We always believe in the Constitution. We also... One of our main principles was tort reform, abuse of frivolous lawsuits in this. Remember those days? Remember those those boring days, Stuart, where tort reform used to be like a top 10 uh, Republican tenant? You know, I I feel like I spent at least a third of my life making those ads. Yeah. So now, I mean, It's like I had to tweet at Ryan's previous. You have Wisconsin. You have 22,000 votes in Wisconsin. So they're going to do a recount. So the last time they did a recount in the presidential was 2016. It was also 22,000 votes. It ended up Donald Trump gained 138 votes. So (laughs) and then they had a, a recount in the governor's race. And that was 116 vote difference. So. You got 22,000 votes. I mean, Reince was chairman of the party. He knows it's his home state. Why can't he just say, guys, look, I'm sorry. I wish it had gone differently. But you're not going to overturn 22,000 votes with a recount. So let's live in the real world and move on. Because he doesn't have any balls. That's why. You know, so, I mean, it, it's so frustrating. When I saw that Reince Priebus was going over to be Trump's first White House chief of staff, I laughed my ass off. I was like, <laughs> right. I mean, Reince Priebus is a very nice guy, but that's about it. He's not exactly, you know. Well, <laughs> we all know Reince Priebus uh, uh, didn't want Donald Trump to be the nominee. Right. You know, he told everybody uh, in the world um, how he thought Donald Trump was destroying the party. And he was right. You know, he urged Donald Trump to get out after Access Hollywood. That's right. Um, I mean, the same with Sean Spicer. You can't find a reporter in America that Sean Spicer didn't call during the campaign and say what a disaster Donald Trump was right up to about 10 o'clock on election night. <laughs> Spicer. I mean, uh, you know, it, 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 listen, the, you talk often in your book about the Republican Party being a party of cowardice. And you tell a story in your book about your dad, who was an FBI agent during the time of um, Japanese internment and how he made the decision that he could not serve in that capacity with watching that happen. And he said no and moved on and um, to a military career and a different career. 
but you make the point that you could always say no. And that these people have made the decision that they're not going to say no. They have just become flat out collaborators. And I don't, it's, yeah, I mean, it's so I, infuriating. It, 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 particularly when the stakes are so small. It takes someone like my dad. And he was just like hundreds of thousands of other men and women. You know, he decided – he had this job that he loved in the FBI. He was basically chasing what they thought might be German spies in Manhattan in, in New York City and going to the theater at night. Um, he loved it. He was like from Mississippi. He got to live in Manhattan and um, – and then they said, round up Asian Americans. He did it for a day and then he quit. So he enlisted in the Navy, which, you know, at the time, a lot of people were getting killed. He fought in the South Pacific for three years, 28 island landings, and he never regretted it. Mm-hmm. He, 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 the worst thing he would say is, I could have, could have just, if I had kept doing that, it would have been much worse. I couldn't do it. Um, but the moral of that story was that he chose say no. to say no. Yeah. And what I really what troubles me the most about these Republicans is this legacy they inherited. They inherited this legacy from the greatest generation and defended with with great blood and treasure. And all these people like my dad, my uncle who was shot seven times in France, never really recovered, but came back and actually became a civil rights lawyer, um, in part because of the experience that he had in Europe. Um, But that's the legacy they inherited. So they can't even stand up to Donald Trump. No one's asking them to storm a beach or no, no one's asking them to cross that, you know, bridge in Selma where there's somebody waiting with a fire hose and a dog. All they have to do is have their comm shop put out a statement acknowledging who won the presidential race. I mean, that's it. And they can't bring themselves to do this. I, I, I It's just so self-damning. And it's not a victimless crime. It, it, I mean, people are going to die because of this, given what's happening with COVID. And they're literally killing people. Their weakness is killing people. And the other thing we always said as conservatives is you can't negotiate with terrorists. And Donald Trump in this dynamic is a terrorist and they're trying to negotiate with him. That's a pretty and, that's a pretty heavy statement, Stuart, when you think about it, right? Did you ever think that you would be talking about the current occupant of the White House as a terrorist yeah. in America and that an entire party is enabling it. Well, it's exactly it's exactly what they're what they're doing. It's the same dynamic that if you try to appease terrorists, they're only going to demand more. Yep. And you know, the thing is, we were right about all this stuff. Frivolous lawsuits are bad. The Constitution is important. You shouldn't appease terrorists, and yet they're going against all of it. You know, on page um, one ninety five on your book, you say that <laughs> what, what institution of the center right stood firm against the disgraceful idiocracy of the Trump years? One by one, the supposed leaders of the party in office frantically shed their uniforms of principle to don the uniform of the new ruling power. A few held firm, but in a nation that claims to value heroism under battle, the armies of the right fled in terror from a tweet. If that doesn't sum up what we're watching right now, I don't know what does. 
It's even worse now because they know he's going to lose. Right. He won't be in power anymore in 60 something days and they're still acquiescing. They're still afraid of it. Yeah. I I really just in a human psychology sense just don't understand it because, you know, all of these senators are going to be fine if they weren't senators. You know, I, I get if you're maybe you're working on the Hill. You got a family. Jobs are hard to come by. Your boss is doing stuff you don't approve of. But, you know, you eat the queen's bread, you fight the queen's war till you can find another gig. Okay, that's not these people. I mean, most of them are fairly wealthy and all of them would be just fine if they left the U.S. Senate tomorrow. And I just don't understand it. I think it's it's. It's sort of what happens in a mob. I mean, no one in like a lynch mob thinks that they're doing something terrible. They think they're doing something necessary. Now, they're probably not really proud of it in that moment, but they feel like this has to be done. And there's a a certain uh, contagiousness to cowardness. And there's a mob mentality. When the person standing next to you is doing the same thing, it makes you feel better about you doing what you know is wrong. And I think that's what's happening here. They all get together and they decide what's really not that bad. Of course, Biden's going to be president. You know, um, we they probably come up with some sophistry that... Um, it will be better for the country in the long run if we have a sort of gradual period here. It's, it's just all excuses for cowardice. You know who else worried about mob rule and what he called the mobocratic spirit? Abraham Lincoln. Okay. (laughs) Abraham Lincoln spoke about this during a a speech in 19, I'm sorry, 1838 in Springfield, Illinois, Many years before the Civil War, many years before running for president, he gave a speech about this where he was looking at what was happening and was very concerned about this mob mentality. He called it mobocratic spirit against people who were uh, people of color, of different religions, uh, with differing opinions. It sounds awfully familiar. And his concerns about that uh, ultimately came to fruition and led to the civil war. But this is not new, you know, this idea, but it never leads to a good, a good ending if it's not brought reined in. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've always had this, a politics of hate in America, like most countries, but, but it's never been endorsed by a major party. Right. I mean, in the thirties, we had a strong fascist movement, a strong anti-Semitic movement. America first. America first. But why didn't it? Well, probably because Charles Lindbergh wasn't president and Roosevelt was. And we would have been the same country. Um, And now you you have a party that has endorsed this. And it's really, you know, to me, the tipping point really was when, you know, December of 2015, when Trump came out for that Muslim ban. And if, if anything we're supposed to stand for is the Constitution, and it's clearly unconstitutional. It's a religious test. And that's when Ryan should have come forward and said what he said about uh, Todd Akin to his credit in Missouri. When Todd Akin was a Republican Senate nominee, he said horrible things about women and rape. And Ryan, to his credit, went and said, we're not going to support this. 
I can't, we can't get them off the ticket. There was no mechanism. We can't tell people not to vote for them. The Republican Party's not going to do one thing to support this person. And that's what Ryan should have said about Trump. You know, Michael Steele said, uh, our good friend Michael Steele, former yeah. RNC chair and um, part of our Lincoln Project pirate ship, uh, and a good friend of mine for almost 20 years. Michael Steele said, I tell you something right now. If I had been chairman of the RNC at the time, Donald Trump would never have been our nominee. And I believe him. I think he's right. Yeah, because he would have done Um, exactly what you said. He would have said, hell no. (laughs) Not no, but hell no. (laughs) And so why didn't they do that? Well, they would say they didn't do it because they didn't think Trump was going to win. They would say they didn't they didn't uh, do it because they were worried about Trump running as an independent. Remember, he was still holding that out. Right. Um, but it, it goes back to what we say about terrorism. There's always a reason to negotiate with terrorists. I mean, <laughs> plenty of reasons. You know, they, they have hostages. They, they have weapons. They let's negotiate with. But you don't do it because the end result is going to be worse. And weakness always leads to worse consequences. And that's exactly what's happened in, in December of 2015. It led to the Trump presidency. And it's what's happening now with untold consequences. What does it mean that 70 uh, percent or so of the Republican Party will not believe that the next president of the United States was elected legally? I have no idea, but it's not going to be good. Right. It's incredibly damaging. Yeah. Incredibly damaging. And in your book, you talk about um, something that I think is the big elephant in the room, no pun intended, but the role of Trump's ability to continually perpetuate these conspiracy theories, this dishonesty, the indecency, you call it the Republican machinery of deception. And you talk about how um, a lot of people prior to now had no idea how powerful and pervasive this actually was. We see it now. But you talk about that. Talk a little bit about the role of the Republican machinery of deception, because that's uh, playing a huge role in why we people believe what they believe and why we're in this shitstorm that we're in right now um, with, you know, 70 percent of Republicans not accepting a duly elected new president. Well, I'd also say it's why, to a large degree, 250,000 Americans have died Correct. in COVID. Yes. There's a, a direct connection between the party that refuses to accept who's president and refuses to accept that a virus will kill you. And it's, it's the same inability to deal in the real world. So where does that come from? To me, it, it comes from, as I say, I think the, the – original sin of the modern Republican Party's race. So how does that play out with this? When you have a party that is refusing to change in a changing America, the only way that you can sort of exist in that world is if you create your own reality. And that extends to voter suppression. It extends to uh, trying to get the majority of African-American votes in Michigan thrown out. Um, And you have to exist in this world where uh, it is as you construct it, not as it is, which is really the premise of Make America Great Again. Because there was never, this this is sort of Shangri-La, this mythical period. What he really means is when white people 
had it, uh, they think had it better. Um, I, I don't think, you know, early 60s were a better America. I don't think the 50s were. Um, but it's a need to have this alternative reality, which is what gives us Fox, which is what gives us um, this uh, crazy uh, lawsuits where you, you, you have once serious human beings like Rudy Giuliani out there talking about widespread voter conspiracies when we know there's not. It's why they can't admit what the Russians did um, in 2016. And it's just once you exist in that world where it has nothing to do with truth, it's a, it's a science denying world. Um, and even when you stress test it with something like COVID, with catastrophic consequences, it's still they won't accept reality. Um, it's uh, it's a pretty alarming. <clears throat> it's pretty alarming when you see that the result of something like this, the result of the deception yeah. is tangible, where people are literally dying. The stories recently, um, CNN featured some of them of these nurses out in South Dakota, you know, which is ground zero right now yeah. you know, in the Midwest with COVID, how people are literally dying, taking their last breaths, denying that it's COVID that's killing them, saying that they, you know, that they don't want that final call to their family, that it's, you know, it's pneumonia, it's not COVID. Um, and as their oxygen levels are dropping, this is, it goes back to your comment about you'll never question how 1938 happened in Germany. My mom and I say this all the time because watching how deceived people are and how in denial they are and how invested they are to the cult of Trumpism is is something that I don't think we ever thought we would see in America at this level. Um, and we're watching it play out when it's literally costing lives. How do we, I don't know how we, how do we, how do we get away from this, Stuart? 70 million it. people voted for this guy. You have to beat it. I mean, I think that there's, you know, I, I think it is like a war and there's no easy victory path. You just have to, you know, defeat it island by island, um, battle by battle. Um, I, I do think larger forces uh, mitigate against this. Um, yeah. A lot of this has to do with levels of education. Um, though there are very well-educated people that go along with this, but I think those people at least know that it's not true. Right, they have different motivations I mean, for it, and they walk away from it when it doesn't benefit them anymore versus yeah. the true believers who don't know yeah, any better. You, you get someone like Josh Hawley, you know, senator from Missouri, who went to Stanford, mm -hmm. taught, at, taught at St. Uh, George's in London, founded in the 1400s, then went to Yale Law School, wrote a very good biography of Teddy Roosevelt that he published at Yale University Press at age 28, and he's railing against the elites. It's like, really, Josh? <laughs> I mean, really? Stanford, it's like George's, Yale Law yeah. School, yeah. and it's the elites. 
I mean, like, you know, give me a break. Um, but that goes back to what, um, you know, my question to you about the role of the Republican machinery of deception, um, how how they're catering to this. It's that machinery that is perpetuating this, that's allowing the Josh Hollies of the world to um, not allowing, it's creating the environment for them to feel as though this is what they need to cater to to survive politically. That's the problem. Example. Go ahead. I'll give you another example. Kelly Loeffler. <clears throat> so Kelly Loeffler was a major fundraiser for Mitt Romney. Um, and, you know, I was lectured severely by her uh, after Donald Trump endorsed Mitt Romney, which we really actually probably to, to uh, you know, I, I'll take the blame for this. We really didn't see it as a big deal. It was 10 minutes. He was a local business person. He endorsed. We were doing three, four of these a day. We didn't see it as a big deal. Uh, probably naively. I'll, I'll take the hit for that. But Kelly Loeffler excoriated me for allowing Donald Trump to endorse Mitt Romney. And what, and because you know, Donald Trump was everything in politics that we hated. Right. Allegedly. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, so uh, this is Kelly Loeffler now who, like, you know, can't suck up to Donald Trump enough. Um, Can I ask you a question about that, about the Trump endorsement really quick? Yeah. So um, so you were in Romney world back then. Um, How did you feel about Mitt deciding to meet with Donald Trump about the secretary of state job? Because I just thought that that was just... Asinine to do. Oh, I can tell you what happened there. I don't think I'm violating any conferences. Um, uh, I I talked to now Senator Romney about it, and his feeling was: Look, I met with Barack Obama after I lost. This person is the president of the United States. He's not who I wanted to be president of the United States, but he is president of the United States, and. If I'm willing to meet with someone who just defeated me because I recognize the system, I should meet with with him. And if there's a role for me to play that can make the country better, I doubt there is. But it would be arrogant to dismiss that out of hand. But so, but don't but don't you think that you know? I, and I and I, I like Mitt Romney. I think he's a good man. And I I kind of jokingly say it's Mitt Romney's fault we're in this mess to begin with because if he would have beaten Barack Obama in 2012, well, we wouldn't be here now. I always joke about it. I would say to that. I would say to that, which I've said many times. Blame me, Charles. Uh, yes. Okay. Well, no, yes. Because, it's it's your mean, fault, I, Stuart. I believe, I believe that when you win, it's the candidates, and when you lose, the consultants should take the hit. And wow. That's very honorable that, of you. I think that was a, a race, uh, a very hard race, very difficult race, but a race that was winnable. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I regret it every day. And I, I, I say, blame me. Well, I say in that race that you guys brought a wiffle ball bat to a gunfight and, you know, try, you weren't aggressive enough in beating back Barack Obama's attack on on capitalism and prosperity and allowed them to define Mitt Romney as an out of touch uh, robber baron type. Um, and I, I don't you know, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, but I, I think when they had when you guys had Obama on the ropes in that first debate, um, you should have kept the should have done the Rick Wilson and kept your foot on the neck and the gas and kept and not let up. But the dynamics were hard because, uh, like you said, it was a tough race but winnable. And um, I just wish there would have been just a little bit more aggression because they they didn't care. You know, they were 
they were they were tougher. You know, it was a it was a wiffle ball bat to a gunfight. But that's all right. You know, you live and learn. Um, but the thing with Romney and Trump, which I think was a microcosm of the entire Republican Party leadership, I just think there was a certain amount of naivety about how cruel, insane and sociopathic Donald Trump really was. And unless you really knew him at, you know, outside of the just his political kind of buffoonery, I think a lot of people underestimated him and they were operating under the old rules of political um you know, the gentleman of the Senate, <clears throat> excuse me, political rules of things, the way things normally go. And that's how Romney, you know, approached it. And I was, you know, a lot of times I was like, no, you can't. This, the rules don't apply to this guy. Same thing with Reince and all the folks that came in that thought they would be able to manage him. Mitch and Paul Ryan, they all thought they could manage him. All right. You know, that's just an act when he becomes president. He'll stop acting like that. He'll rise to the occasion. And I was like, (laughs) no, he won't, but okay, go right ahead. And I think that's what happened in Mitt. And it was uh, unfortunate that he got used like that. Well, you know, as I, this was easy to predict it was going to happen. And he was not unaware that this would likely happen. But, you know, his feeling was, look, the worst thing that's happened to me in politics has happened. I lost the presidential race. So, well, I don't um, know. So I don't know. If I'm going to be. Right, no, look, I mean, for him, you know, Mitt is one of these people who is on the record and off the record is pretty much the same. Right. And it, he said he thought that he should do it because it was part of a process to respect. And that's really what he felt. There wasn't any other higher game. Yeah, no, and, look, and, and me, I know. He's a good person. Thing, he came from a good place. Thing. He just got let used. Let me say one, one thing about 2012, um, which is one of my least favorite subjects. But let me uh, – <laughs> so Mitt Romney lost with 47.2%. Donald Trump won with 46.1%. So – I would uh, and on election day Mitt Romney and Barack Obama both had favorables of 50% so and he um, won and Romney something people didn't know was that Romney won more a greater share of the of the white non-college educated vote in places like Wisconsin than Trump did right he won more Romney lost Wisconsin by seven Trump won by just under one Mitt Romney got more votes yeah so um Obviously, a campaign's a failure if you don't win. But um, the whole dynamic of running against uh, an incumbent president, particularly one who's not in the federal funding system, which leveled the playing field, before Donald Trump just lost, the last person to lose in that dynamic as an incumbent president not in the federal funding system was Herbert Hoover. And there's a lot of parallels, I think, between the disaster in the country, between Hoover. Hoover's a much better person, much better president, actually. But still, you, you had disastrous economic climate. You had the same for Trump. And I think it kind of takes that to beat the incumbent president, probably. Um, but look, you know, Mitt Romney, as he said, there were things I could have said in that race that probably would have helped me that I, I wasn't going to say. And it wasn't about defensive capitalism. I think you, you can make a good case about what you're saying. But you look at uh, the, sort of the bloody shirt on immigration or race that Trump waved. It wasn't like people didn't know this. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it, it just, it, it was just, you know, he was never going to do that. Um, and I think that's how democracy should work. You know, I, I never, I've worked for presidential campaigns that won, presidential campaigns that lost. I never feared for the country if the other person won. I mean, it, it made me sick to think about it because I hated to lose. Sure. But I, I, I never thought, like, democracy is in danger if Al Gore won the presidency or John Kerry won the presidency. I thought they're going to do stuff I don't like. Um, but they're Americans. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to defend the country. And I, I really felt, it's really what brought me to the Lincoln Project. I, I really felt with Donald Trump, and I think it's just been proven to be true by the way he's acting now, that Donald Trump was re-election was a real threat to democracy. It, it turns out him losing is a threat to democracy. God forbid what it would have been winning. Imagine. Um, imagine that. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to. And that's why we work so hard at the Lincoln Project to to do everything we could and take all of our collective experiences to um, impact this race to make sure that he didn't win. Um, which but is I actually, can make a, I can make a positive, some positives here. So, you know, when you look at uh, Georgia, for instance, I mean, what, the New York Times analysis of what happened in Georgia is really interesting um, and different than what I would have thought. I would have thought that there would have been a uh, disproportionately high African-American turnout uh, if he uh, if Biden was able to win Georgia. Now, more African-Americans voted than ever before in Georgia, but also more white voters voted and uh, a larger percentage of white voters shifted their vote from Trump to uh, Biden. And those are, I mean, that was the focus of the Lincoln Project. And I have to say, uh, I, I think our aim was pretty dead on in this case. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in the larger cultural sense, the country as Donald Trump sees it is a country that is fading. Um, I, I, those suburban appeals to race in the suburbs. Um, I, I think... The, there's good evidence that it failed. It, 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 you, you look at what happened in Georgia, you look at what happened in um, outside Philadelphia in these classic Republican counties. Like I, I did two races for Governor Ridge. He's the last Republican governor reelected in Pennsylvania. And the idea a Republican would lose because of the collar counties. I mean, like, like Delaware County, you're going to lose because you lost Delaware County as a Republican. <laughs> I mean, that, that would be like a Democrat saying, I'm, I lost because I lost Philly. Right, right. Like, really? You lost yeah. Philly, dude? I mean, it, it, there, there, you know, there was a Republican political machine in the collar counties outside of Philadelphia. Um, and I remember when I first started working there and I asked these guys to, when Ridge, they endorsed Ridge in the primary and I asked, what vote they were going to get. And they gave a specific number. And they said, I said, well, how do you know this? And he said, well, you know, son, around here, people still like their garbage picked up. And it was, like, <laughs> <laughs> it was so great. It's like, oh, this is really like a machine. Yeah, and, yeah. And, th and those voters um, um, are, are the ones that really uh, help push uh, Biden over in, in Pennsylvania. And, th and they're growing. And I, I go back to this, you know, Confederate flag issue. My home state of Mississippi finally takes down the state flag, the last state flag that uh, 
has basically dominated by Confederate, was basically the Confederate battle flag. And yet Trump that same week gets in a war with NASCAR over banning the Confederate flag. You're in a cultural war with NASCAR and you're a Republican. Right. So, I mean, I just he doesn't care about he, those things. He doesn't care I, about that. <laughs> no, but I just don't think uh, I, I think where the country is going, it, it's going much faster than we realize. To me, it's a lot like same sex marriage. You know, I mean, in 2008, every Republic, every Democrat and Republican candidate for president was against same sex marriage. In 2020, it wasn't even an issue. I mean, I don't even think the subject came up. It, shoot, in 2012, uh, in 2004, same-sex marriage is basically what put George W. Bush over the top in Ohio with black yeah, I, with black church-going voters in Ohio rejecting yeah. that idea and voting for, for um, George W. Bush. I mean, that's yeah. how far we've come from that. Um, but you talk a lot about that in your book about the, the cultural changes and the demographic changes of the country and how... The Republican Party seems not to be able to get away from the original sin of slavery and racism and the things that um, are now very prominent in the Republican Party. The the, the, the Confederate flag issue and the Confederate uh, base names and things is one of those issues. And um, the flag of treason ad that Lincoln right. Project did was uh, pretty unprecedented. You'd never seen Republicans take that issue on so directly because of the long history of the the Southern strategy <laughs> that right. uh, Lee Atwater and uh, those folks back in the 60s and 70s put into place. And it was kind of the thing that, you know, you don't really talk about that. Um, so for Lincoln Project to to put an ad like that out, and I, I helped consult on that. Did you work on that ad too, Stuart? Uh, my role in that ad was to be a cheerleader. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think that's great. <clears throat> yeah. But, yeah. You know, that was, that was my role with a lot of ads Rick did. You're right. Right. You know, Rick, Rick is an extraordinarily gracious guy to work with. And, you know, if you have a suggestion on an ad, he, he's just welcomes it. But yeah. more often than not, I found my role with Rick was like, that's really good, Rick. <laughs> we should do it. <laughs> like, What know, were some of your uh, favorites? What were some of your favorite uh, Lincoln Project ads that oh, you worked on? Uh, um, oh, look, I, I don't want to get into who worked on what ads. But, okay, I mean, you don't have you to. Know, we, I just we, thought for we, people so you, they knew we, that we, what you had I, your hand I, in. You know, um, I think some of the – obviously a lot of the negative ads got a lot of attention because negative ads are fun. Right. Um, if, if you make them fun, and, and uh, Rick has a particular genius for making them fun, um, which makes them more effective. But, you know, I, I think some of the, the positive stuff we did was uh, very powerful. I thought the stuff we did after John Lewis died. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the final ad that we did on Biden, um, that this, this was, was his moment. Yes. That, cause I, I think it was important and I, I really felt this. I mean, I think that Biden was, uh, chosen by history in this moment to help America and someone who had run for president before, hadn't been very good at it, but the, a lot of the qualities that made him not a good candidate now made him a critically uh, essential candidate. I think it was a sense of um, that stability is the flip side of boring <laughs> and re- reliability is the flip side of boring. And, and Joe Biden had been a kind of boring candidate. Uh, 
But all of a sudden, that was a quality that just seemed to have great appeal. Um, and he's someone been in office since he's 28 years old, usually the least experienced candidate wins. But now the idea of having someone who actually knew how to be president, it was tremendously appealing. And he's someone who you know, has that deep, tragic connection to, to grief. Mm-hmm. You know, when a country was in mourning. So I, I think you know, a couple of ads we did talking about sort of this was his moment. Um, I think the bigger candidate tends to win uh, presidential candidates. Um, so I, I think that was uh, really helpful for him. Uh, they helped sort of set a tone there. But look, I got to say, you know, I, I think the Biden campaign ran a historically good campaign. Um, to to be a front runner as they were in the primary and to stumble as badly as they did. I mean, I'd like to say I've never been there, but I have. <laughs> and, and the hydraulic pressure you have to change the candidacy, usually in some way that'll never work, but you feel like, well, we don't have anything to lose. We'll try this crazy stuff. They didn't do that. I mean, they decided they were going to win or lose with who Joe Biden was. And I assume the vice president was the one driving that decision. Mm-hmm. That's really hard. And damn if they didn't win. I mean, that's like being down 40 to nothing at the end of the third quarter of the Super Bowl and you stick with your game plan and you win. Right, right. It's like, wow. And, you know, in that period in June and uh, July, end of May, you know, in modern history, every challenger to an incumbent president has gone down in that period right after they got the nomination. Because it makes sense. You're broke when you emerge from a primary process. You uh, have to put together a national campaign uh, comprised of all these candidates that you were beating the crap out of two weeks earlier. You have to put together a national organization, which is very difficult. Um, And the Biden campaign is the only campaign that in that period they went up against uh, Donald Trump. And they never looked back. Yep. And, yep. and, you know, their discipline and not getting baited into uh, when Trump was trying to say, you know, he was a basement candidate, which is ironic now because Donald Trump won't leave the basement. Right. Right. Um, the bunker mentality. Now, the, we haven't seen him since uh, since his disgraceful appearance at Arlington Cemetery, I think. Right. Where he showed up yeah. late for Veterans Day and stayed all of uh, 10 minutes or whatever it was and and left. Is that the last time we saw him or did he do a Rose Garden announcement? I no, think he with did, Pfizer. He did. He did, uh, yeah, he did that. And then he, yeah. and then he did that weird drive-by. Oh, don't even get me started about that. Uh, yeah, where, during I mean, the MAGA it, rally. Yeah, I mean, it was just like what a freak show. Uh huh. Um, Which we, we we could say about a lot of uh, a lot of incidences with with Donald Trump. This whole freaking four years of his presidency has been one big freak show. I mean, that you know, when you think and you 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 look at the people that Trump that Biden is bringing into the White House compared to the people who Trump brought into the White House. I mean, uh, you and I know a lot of these people who oh, yeah. Trump brought in. And, oh, and yeah. you know, they, they were people that just, it wasn't like they woke up all of a sudden one day and wanted to be involved in presidential politics. It's just that nobody would hire them. Correct. And for good reason. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know. They had no business being anywhere near a taxpayer-funded job. Ever. Even if Steve Bannon on the National Security Council? Oh, I mean, I know. Steve Bannon, 
I mean, that guy in 2004 used to call me all the time trying to get involved in the campaign. He was just like, what a weirdo. <laughs> like, I mean, like and there's somebody, a long list of those. Stephen yeah, Miller, you know, Stephen St- Miller. I mean, Seb these are people. Gorka. Yeah, Seb Gorka. I mean, these are people you wouldn't like share a cab with. <laughs> I mean, it's like, no, you wouldn't sit next to him on a plane. No, that's right. Um, that's right. I mean, they're just, they're just weird, broken people who are yes. using public life to work through a lot of deep personal issues. Um, you know, Carly Fiorina had a, had a tweet this week that I, I really appreciated where she talked about how this is a, a group of inadequate men, unequipped, so true. unequipped to, to handle the situation and that they're, you know, we're all suffering at the hands of their inadequacy. And I was like, oh my God, she nailed that. Yeah, I, I she absolutely nailed it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just the... I mean, I know Ron Klain. I've worked with him. Somewhere we were on a debate commission deal together. I mean, yeah, Ron is a top-notch, smart solid, guy. Solid, solid mm-hmm. people. I've interviewed I mean, Ron. He's been a guest here on the program, um, and also he, uh, you know, he graduated from Harvard. So he was gracious enough to take the interview with me when I was a, a fellow over at uh, the Kennedy School earlier this year. And Ron is wonderful. You know, he's yeah. a he's a capable, smart guy, and it's it's refreshing to have that level of institutional knowledge back in the White House with all these people. And that's the benefit of having an experienced candidate. It's the benefit of having a vice president who was a heartbeat away from the presidency for eight years. Um, now in the driver's seat, he's been there before and knows how to do this. And, and so do the know, people around him. He's not selecting these people based on their Fox ability appearances. To, uh, well, uh, ability <laughs> to praise him. Right. I mean, I think there's sort of a management style Donald Trump has. He takes people who never could be at the level he's going to place them, and it gives them a great loyalty to Trump. So, you know, Michael Cohen, he elevates Michael Cohen to a position that Michael Cohen knows if he goes out in the real world, no one else is going to hire him and pay him that kind of money and give him that kind of position except Donald Trump. So you're loyal to Donald Trump. And... And Donald Trump it, it, knows that. He, he preys on people manage, like this. Yeah, yeah. Um, he actually, and, you know, he actually said, there's a video of him talking to students that actually, where he actually says that you should never have people smarter than you in the room, which is the no. complete opposite of what anyone who's a strong right. leader, who's an effective well, leader or manager tells you. They always tell you, uh, you shouldn't be the smartest person in the room. So that just my, tells you. Michael Bloomberg <laughs> tells a story that, you know, he gets elected president in this period kind of now in 2006. You know, he called Donald Trump to congratulate him on being president. And says Trump said to him, Michael, you know, what do you think I should do? And he goes, well, you know, uh, Donald, my, my, my one bit of advice is just get people in the room smarter than you. And his response was, Mike. There's no one smarter than me. Oh, God. <laughs> of course. Of course. He just had this horrible <laughs> feeling like, oh, God. Right. I'm in trouble. It's worse than I thought. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that it's worse than any of us thought. You know, I mean, I at this point in 2016, after we were all processing Trump's win, um, I just said, I hope that everything I predicted was wrong. I've never wanted to be more wrong in my life because me being right meant it was bad for America. And it has been worse than many of us could have ever imagined. Um, 
And that's partially much, why much, 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 much worse. worse. Yeah. And, and I mean, exponentially worse. Even George Conway, who was my last guest, and I've known George for a couple of years. I've known Kellyanne longer, um, but uh, who I don't speak to anymore because I'm over her. But I'm just so disappointed in her. And she's added to a long list of people that I just don't recognize anymore. Um, but uh, that's part of the reason why I tried to hold on as, as being part of the party. And then after seeing that Trumpism was not repudiated and that the party was certainly not changing di- direction, they were not going to course correct, even with Trump losing. And I said, I'm done. I cannot be a party to this anymore. Um, I had to disassociate myself from it because it's at this point, I feel like it's irreparable. It is irreparable in the in the short term and without some type of major uh, loss, change of power, desperation, something to make them change. This is the party of Trump. And I I, I cannot be a part of it, a part of it anymore. I'd rather fight the fight uh, from the outside. Your statement on uh, the last uh, episode right after, or I guess the first episode right after the election, uh, on, the, on the breakdown of why you were leaving the party, it was one of the most moving, uh, articulate, heartfelt uh, uh, pieces. I, I, I just was stunned when I sat there and heard it. Oh, thank um, you. No, it was a beautiful piece of, of thought. I hope you'll expand on that and write about it more because I'm planning to. I mean, yeah, I mean, you were the real deal. Talk. I mean, you, you really were the best of us. You were you were someone who was a conservative, but you weren't mad at anybody about it. You know, I mean, you you thought it was the best that it brought out the best in all of us, and that it was the path for us to be our best selves. That that, that kind of relationship between our, ourselves and government, ourselves and society, a sense of personal responsibility. I mean, somebody like me, I got drawn more into campaigns. You know, and there's a there's an intoxication that comes with that. Uh, I, I realize you, you kind of get into being a gunslinger. <laughs> you, you never did that. You you are you, you really uh, you and I think Michael Gerson um, and Pete Weiner. You got you guys were the best of us. Um, That's kind you of kept, you. you. You kept true. No, you kept true. Um, and. Uh, I, I think that when people look back on this moment, they're going to look at at, uh, at you and Mike and Pete and say, like, why so few? <laughs> why? Why? You know, what happened? I mean, they'll look at Mitt and say, why couldn't uh, Mitt, Mitt Romney said these things and nobody shot him? You know, he, he was fine. He was a better person for it. He was obviously a happier person. Yep. Um, and, and, and why, why didn't people see that and follow it? And I think um, that's the bigger question that we face as a as a as a society, um, Stuart. I mean, we have all of our policy fights, and and I kind of look forward to those again. But we have a very serious societal problem that um, requires a much deeper cultural reckoning in this country um, that threatens our democracy, threatens the American experiment, threatens the shining city on the hill. Um, um, uh, character of this country that I'm still figuring out what role I will play in that um, and what what that looks like moving forward to try to restore the soul of this country because without it yeah, I, I fear what the future of America looks like 
Well, you know, what, what is conservatives that we said? We always said the culture was the soul of the nation. Right. And that that was more important than any one specific issue. Issues will come and go, but that sense of culture. Um, and what was that culture? I mean, it had to be a sense of something greater than yourself, a sense of humility, a sense of service, a sense of aspiring to something better. Um I mean, in, in Bush world, it's not like we were perfect, for God's sake. So we played too much on the dark side. I'd be the first to say. But at least we aspired to something bigger than ourselves um, and had a sense of when we'd failed and when we didn't. With Trump, it, 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 there is no aspiration. Your worst self is your best self. That's your truest self. You know, that, that, that part of you, like a car cuts you off in traffic and you feel that little spurt of road rage, that, that's your best self. That's not the part of you that you ought to go, just it doesn't matter, let him go. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. that to him is to be a sucker. Right. That, that's to be weak. Yep. Yep. You can't let that happen. Um, and I think, you know, we all have that dark side in us. And that's why the sense of, of uh, role models and character and what just stunned me so much about Trump is he was so antithetical to every other role model that we were exposed to in life. He, he was, there was no teacher that taught you to be like Donald Trump. There was no coach. There was no Boy Scout or Girl Scout. There was nobody uh, out there in society saying you should be like Donald Trump. You should be selfish. You should be self-aggrandizing. You should be a pathological liar. Um, you should treat other people as if they're beneath you. None of that was reinforced in our society. And yet here we have Donald Trump and people embrace it. That is a much larger conversation about um, how we got here. Uh, I've often contemplated that it started with the moral relativism of the 60s and kind of, you know, the chipping away at some of those social mores that um, that we as conservatives thought were important. And, you know, I, I, I say a lot of times I use the example of my mom and I talk about this all the time um, when when. Bill Clinton was asked whether he wears boxers or briefs during a Rock the Bird right. MTV event, that that was the beginning of the end <laughs> because <laughs> it just it took down the prestige of the presidency, the office of the presidency um, down a lot of notches where it became more of a cultural phenomenon. And, you know, Bill Clinton on on late night television playing a saxophone. I mean, right. that you know, that's cool and all. And it was genius. You know, I'm good friends now with Paul Begala. And I, I joke with him all the time about that incident, how there were some people who thought they were aghast at the idea of Bill Clinton doing right. that on Arsenio and Paul Begala and, and James Carville were like, no, he needs to freaking do this. OK, <laughs> we need to get with the times. And they were right. Um, but there were other aspects of what happened, you know, moving forward with like, you know, reality television, uh, Jerry Springer. Um, and you look at how our culture has devolved into this very, I call it the Jerry Springerization of politics. That's exactly what we got with Donald Trump. It's culminated now with a reality show, you know, pugilistic, lying, sociopath, um, reality show loser as our president and millions of Americans worshiping him in a death cult. Holy shit, we've got a lot to dig ourselves out of. 
so, gate, so take us out, Stuart, on some on a positive note, okay? Since now I mean, it's been a total downer yeah, and I think everything's going um, to hell. What do, what is what do we do? Come January twentieth, that's going to be a happy day. Joe Biden is sworn into office. I don't know what inauguration day is going to look like this year, but um, you know, twelve oh one on January twentieth, President Joe Biden takes over. What does it look like moving forward? Well, look, I have a, a hope here um, that that in any time you know you're surrounded sort of by craziness, it can be difficult to remember what normalcy was like, and then when you're introduced to normalcy, uh, it, it is so refreshing. <laughs> and and I think that um, you're going to have a uh, return to normalcy with with Biden um, and Harris that is going to be uh, extraordinarily soothing. Um, I mean, one of the greatest benefits of being in a civil society and a democracy is not having to think about government and not to have wake up every day and wonder what your ruler is thinking. I mean, that's, that's, you know, no, nobody woke up every day and wondered whether or not Dwight Eisenhower was in a good mood. Right. It, it didn't. Right. It didn't matter. You know, you were focused on like building the interstate highway system. You know, <laughs> um, stuff to do. And I, and I think that my hope is that when the country returns to that, that when you have someone like Trump out there. Uh, and Trump himself and his odious children, when they that it's going to seem so atonal that it'll be like, no, I don't want to go back to that. It, it's like you know, we've all had these arguments, maybe with family members, go on and on, and you just kind of like, I just forget it. You know, uh, you get away from it and you come back, and it's like, no, we don't want to go through this again. Let's just move on. <laughs> so, what and, happens? And, what happens to the Republican Party? Does it burn to the ground? Uh, I think the Republican Party um, is on a glide path nationally to become what it is in California. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't buy. Donald Trump did a, a little better with Hispanics. I think the Democratic Party has a lot of warning signs in this election. I think that mm-hmm. they have to treat. I think they have to treat Hispanics as swing voters more than voters that they just need to motivate. Um, but the flip side of that is that you know, if it if it wasn't obviously for non-white voters, Joe Biden wouldn't be president. Um, so. I think that uh, the party is going to continue to shrink. Um, and it doesn't, to me, it's like the subprime mortgage. You know, if you see a, a movie like The Big Short, it usually takes longer than you thought. And how it ends is easier to predict than how long it takes. Um, but I, I think that uh, as the country changes, the party is going to continue to shrink and then we'll uh, have to change. Uh, I, I just go back to major- those in the country who are 15 years old and under, the majority are non-white. They're going to be 18 and non-white. And th- that's the future of the country. And all the Stephen Millers in the world, you know, Stephen Miller can't have enough children to stop that. And it's just, that's just how it's going to be. <laughs> Thank God. 
and yeah, I, and um, but you in your book you use the example, and um, that I I actually stand corrected now because I I use the example that the Republican Party will go the way of the Whigs if they don't course correct, and you say that that's actually not the best comparison. You use a different comparison of the future of the party. Yeah, I, I think the party is uh, going to uh, become increasingly irrelevant. And it will, I think it will uh, probably stay the Republican Party, um, but it will, com- it will at some point transform. Um, I mean, if you look how different the Democratic Party is now than it was in 1992, it, it changed, some for good, some for worse. But you can make a good case that the 2016 uh, Clinton campaign was running against the 92 Clinton campaign. Um, and I, I think that the party will have to uh, evolve like that, but it's going to take a long time. You know, um, we'll see. I, I, um, I know it, it dismays me every day. I'm crestfallen over watching uh, a party. Every, and, and, every all day. of it. Yeah, it's every, just every day. It it's, just gets worse and worse. It just gets worse. No, I mean, I, I, I <laughs> my, my long time. Uh, partner uh in my old firm Russ Sharifer um and, and dear friend when uh, uh the Supreme Court vacancy came up I said Russ I, you know what Lindsay said they, they can't go back on this and Russ just laughed at me he goes you still are naive you still don't get <laughs> there is no bottom here <laughs> I said how can he eat what he said mark my watch the tape hold it against me he goes he's just gonna do it and he got and reelected. Not, and it's not going to matter. Right. And he got reelected. It's it is mind blowing and mind blowing. Uh, you know, and I think that that's um, you know, as we close, it's uh, it's just a, it furthers the um, the case for why the Lincoln Project and groups like ours uh, still need to exist and why it's so important to hold these bastards accountable for their duplicity and their dishonesty and to continue to point that out and to provide uh, an alternative and explain to people why this matters. Because I don't think a lot of people understand, like, you know, you said before earlier in the conversation about how you've, you know, in campaigns, you've never been worried that the the opponent that you may lose to would actually be dangerous for the country or that, you know, democracy would be at stake. But that was different this time around with Donald Trump. Um, I don't think enough Americans understand why we all feel that way because of a lack of civic education and just education in general and being uninformed. I mean, Thomas Jefferson warned about that. If you had an uninformed citizenry, you were more susceptible to tyranny, which is why the founding fathers were so adamant about protecting First Amendment rights of free speech and press and those things, because you needed an informed citizenry or else you get a Donald Trump. (laughs) So it's our job to continue, I feel, at least my job, I know, it's my job to continue to be that um, mechanism, provide that mechanism for people to be informed so they can pay attention and make informed decisions. Otherwise, we're doomed. Well, you know, in your your beautiful statement of why you left a party, you referenced uh, Ronald Reagan's statement that tyranny is, you know, one generation away. From extinction, uh, yep. From extinction. And... I, I I think we were. That's true. And freedom is one. Ex- freedom is one generation away from extinction. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and, and I think to, to, we have to realize that this is 
the most fragile of gifts we've been given and, and a gift at great cost. And, and that it has to be fought for, which is what Reagan said, right? It has to be. It has to be fought for. Yep. And that's yeah. our. And that's uh, the role that we've. Uh, the cross we now bear. Those of us who started off in this business may not have believed that that's how we would end up, but that's where we are. And um, as as patriots and people who love our country and the Constitution and want to see us succeed. Um, I don't think that's a bad place to be. I think history will be more kind to those of us who decided to take that road than those of us who took that wider road to destruction. So, Stuart Stevens, it's been a pleasure to have you. Great you. talking with you. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks and, for everything um, you do. No, likewise. And um, I, I appreciate being on the same team in this in this fight to uh, to preserve the soul of our nation and restore it. <laughs> all right. All the best. Thank you, Stu. Take make care. sure you uh, get his book. It was all a lie. How the Republican Party became Donald Trump. It is quite the read. It was life changing for me and opened my eyes to a lot of uglier realities that I did not want to face or was just naive about concerning the Republican Party and really helped me make the decision to finally say enough is enough. So I appreciate you, Stuart. All right. Talk to you soon. <laughs> all right. Bye. Again, a big thank you to my friend, Stuart Stevens. I appreciate him so much. Check out his book. It was all a lie, how the Republican Party became Donald Trump. And uh, I just want to say I want everyone to have a happy Thanksgiving. Um, The next podcast will be out after Thanksgiving. Be sure to check out our LPTV program, The Breakdown, the one that I co-host with the Rick Wilson. We are not on five days a week now. We're back to two days a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So uh, check us out there. Follow me on Twitter at Tara Setmayer at honestly underscore Tara. Be sure to follow me on Instagram as well at the Tara Setmayer. And I hope everyone has a, a wonderful and safe Thanksgiving. And hopefully by the next time that we're together, the next episode, we'll have some certifications and maybe this nightmare will be over. Hoping, praying, but it will come to an end. I assure you folks by January 20th at 12 o'clock new. Have a great Thanksgiving and wear your masks. See you next time.